Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former Seattle Seahawks and current ESPN broadcaster Matt Hasselbeck. Throwing again with a short drop. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, we welcome an 18-year NFL veteran. He's a three-time Pro Bowler, and on October 25th, he'll be inducted in the Seahawks Ring of Honor. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Hasselback. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Hey, and as you can tell, I just got an email. So there you go. You've got mail. <laughs> Very good. Did you hear? Did you hear the alert? I, I'm assuming you did. I heard the alert. I heard the alert. <laughs> the email never ends, man. Never ends. You're a busy man. You're I, as I was preparing for my Matt Hasselback podcast. I look up last night. There you are, right on the screen. Made it easier. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's been fun. You know, I thought when I was done playing, I thought it would be like, uh, shoot, what am I going to do all day? And somehow I feel like I'm more busy than than I've ever been. So uh, uh, not complaining. It's been super fun and. Um, you know, just uh, when football season is here, it's a seven-day-a-week deal. Matty, I played with my brother as uh, in 1998 with Cincinnati Reds. I look back, he, he was a part of that infield. And at the time, it was no big deal to me. I just looked at him like, you know, third baseman, whatever. He's my third baseman, happens to be my brother. You got, to, you got that unique opportunity, too. You played with your brother at Boston College. What was that like for you guys? Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, we fought a lot as kids. Uh, you know, we've got different personalities and at home we would fight a lot. But as soon as we like left the house, we were, you know, just super tight and would stick together through everything. And, you know, like it was great being teammates. Tim was a great athlete and, uh, you know, probably I was a big recruit, but Tim was even a bigger recruit. And so, uh, I remember my senior year, we got a new head coach. It was my third head coach in the, that I had in college. And he came in and he basically was like, Hey, listen, you know, everyone here is telling me that you're better than your brother. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to cause any family drama, but I don't care if he's older than you, if you're better, you're going to start. And, uh, I was like, uh, coach, I'm the older brother. <laughs> it was like, so it was like, it was like this awkward, awkward moment. I think the coach felt bad. So I, I started my senior year and, uh, and, and Tim didn't, but uh, yeah, we, we were very competitive with each other all the time. I think it helped, helped us both, um, you know, be better than we otherwise would have been. And that, and that's really interesting too. I mean, my, me and my brothers, we're, we're never competing. You know, we, there was, I don't, I don't know how to put it. You know, I've been, I've talked about a lot of different times. It's like Aaron, I I have a brother that's 10 years younger than me, Matthew. And then Aaron's four years younger than me. So there was never really that competition. You know, when you're little brother, it's like, you're so far behind, you really can't compete. So (laughs) I never had that real competition. He wasn't playing the same position as me. Yeah, But I think, you know, being at, a, at the same college, playing the same position, because you're right, at any time, Timmy could go up and go, I'm playing a little bit better than you, Matt. You go put the headphones on. 
Yeah, you know, our skill set was different. You know, Tim was a really good runner. You know, I think he had the school record for quarterback and power clean and stuff like that. He was kind of a weight room freak. Uh, you know, in fact, his freshman year, he, he was so disappointed with, like, how we were playing on special teams. And he was a freshman. I think he was maybe the third string quarterback. And and he went to the special teams coach, and he's like, um, hey, coach, like, you guys need help on special teams. Put me out there. Like, I'll help. And he's a quarterback. So he was on the punt block team. He was on the uh, he was on the punt team. He was on the kickoff return team. I think the only special team he wasn't on was the kickoff team. But uh, that was just kind of the, the player that he was. And, you know, he just was good for me mentally, too. I, there was a time where, um, you know, basically I was struggling as a player. I came over, we're playing a game in Hawaii and, and it's in the fourth quarter and I, I get in the game and, and uh, I'm kind of frustrated with something. And he basically like does what you see a lot of tough head coaches do. Like he basically, I don't know if he grabbed me by the face mask, but he definitely grabbed me and was like, Hey, basically like get your head out of your butt. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop making excuses. Let's find a way to win this game. And like, you got to do it. And we come back and we somehow win that game and uh, kick a game winner at the end and had to score a touchdown and a two point conversion and all that kind of stuff. But it was, uh, you know, it it was thankful to him for helping me get that done and and just kind of get my, myself refocused. Very cool. Uh, born and raised in Norfolk, Massachusetts. Yeah, kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of. You know, I was uh, I was born. My parents were married in college. I was born in Boulder, Colorado. My uh, dad played football at CU, and uh, got drafted to the New England Patriots. My parents are from Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio. They had to look up New England on a map, like on an atlas, like they bought at the gas station. Like, all right, where are we going? New England. And so my dad get drafted here. They bought a house and we've grown up here pretty much. But uh, he also played for the Los Angeles Raiders, the Minnesota Vikings, the New York Giants. So I moved around as a kid. It just was different time. You know, like football players weren't making that much money. So you'd go play your football season. And then in the offseason, you'd come home and you'd have a second job. And, you know, essentially that's kind of what my dad was doing like most of the Patriot players that, that I kind of grew up with their kids. And, and that was the, the, you know, the life that we kind of led. So uh grew up in Boston, Boston. Yes. My dog likes Boston as well. And, and, uh, but, but moved around quite a bit also as a kid. Um, Matt Hasselbeck, what, what was that? Like, were you always a football player? Were there other sports? Um, take me through it. Did you tag along with dad? Every sport. We played every sport. We The only football we played was front yard football, like with the neighborhood. Uh, football was the one sport that was sort of forbidden by my by my parents. It was like, well, you're not allowed to play football. Uh, you can play every sport, play golf, play baseball, play basketball. You're not playing football. And I think it was just because my dad was a tight end in the NFL. Um you know, he's a big guy. He was like six, seven, you know, two, whatever he was. And, and, uh, he just, uh, you know, it was like a car accident every Sunday for him. So, you know, he played nine years in the NFL and he just was like steering us towards other sports. And, you know, what ended up happening is, was, you know, we basically played every sport there was. And finally, when my dad was done playing, we said, Hey, you know, fall, we're playing soccer, running cross country. Like, could we like, as our organized sports, could we please play football? We love football. And he finally was like, fine, when I'm done playing, you can play. And, you know, it was a smart business decision on his part because there's three boys in our family and 
you know, we all played football in college and, you know, all on scholarship. So, you know, my parents didn't have to pay for college education because of football, but it's just super ironic because uh, that was the one sport we weren't allowed to play at the organized level. That makes sense. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, I played football a little bit. My mom was always, no, no, she didn't forbid me from playing it. The, the, the weird thing is, you know, my dad being a catcher and, uh, the one thing I wasn't allowed to do as a baseball player was catch. Huh. He would he would always tell me, he said, Brett, you play shortstop till you can't play shortstop anymore. Catching's the last thing you do. Well, that's you hilarious. Know? That's hilarious yeah. because everyone, you know, I played baseball also. I primarily played football, basketball, baseball. And, you know, I'm a big believer in multi-sport athletes, you know, especially now that I've got kids. But um, everyone thought, because I was a quarterback, that I should be the pitcher. But I played catcher and catcher was my favorite position. It's the most quarterback like position to me. And uh, I really wanted to play professional baseball. The problem was I was the only person who <laughs> felt that way. You know, like I always say football chose me. It wasn't like I chose football. If it was up to me, uh, it would have been baseball. And I see that with my kids too. Like my oldest daughter just won a national championship uh, in college playing lacrosse this year. And if you would have asked her anywhere along the way, you know, from third grade all the way through maybe even sophomore, junior year in high school, she would have told you that her dream was to play college basketball. The problem is college basketball didn't love her back uh, the way that just like for me, baseball didn't love me back. And so, you know, it, it worked out for her because I, I think because we stayed well-rounded, we played as many sports as we could. And, uh, you know, I'm glad my parents raised us that way. And that's for sure how we're going to raise our kids. I think you make a good point. And, you know, it's been brought up a lot about today versus kind of not, I don't want to call it yesteryear, but our time growing up, you're, you're a little bit younger than me, but it, it was, it, it was basically you play three sports, you know, whatever the season was and, the, the kids that moved on, whatever we excelled at, that's what we did, whatever, you know, a lot of us, what was our favor? What was our passion? But, I, but I see these, I see a lot of, of the kids today and I'm not saying in every circumstance, it doesn't, you know, it's, I don't know. It, it, I just it's like hard. to see it's these. Hard. I, it's, I, I would just say, it's not like you got to choose to me. It's not like you got to choose. It's just, I feel like you should do It's It's sort of both, you know, even in football season here, my son's in football season right now. And one day a week, we're dedicating at least two hours to some sort of skills training in uh, lacrosse for him. So, you know, I just, I don't think it's like all or nothing. You know, I've read a thing, I read a thing on Jordan Spieth one time where his mom made his parents made him like hang up his golf bag, um, you know, when it was time for the next sport. Uh, and so, like, you know, maybe he's talented enough to do that. Not everyone's talented enough to do that. But I just think there's great life lessons and some of the great coaches that you come across in your career or your life. You know, some of the great coaches in my life have been football players, but some have not. Some were basketball coaches. Uh, one for sure was a little league baseball coach. You know, so like it's just I just think it's uh, it's important to be a well-rounded human being to give yourself you know, opportunities like that. And uh, at least that was my experience. If you can do it, I, I would say do it. I think you're right. I think basketball can help you on the football field. I think football can can help you. It can transfer to the base, you know, playing baseball. I think that's a great thing you bring up with Spieth. He hung it up. 
when you're 12 years old, you're not supposed to be going around the clock in a sport. You can get burnt out. Well, I remember, I, I remember when yeah, baseball, I, was- I hear, I hear that, but there's some people and I would put our house in this category. We were around the clock sports and we, I don't think we would ever burn out on sports. No, we no, no. I'm not saying, we- I'm not saying sports. I'm saying one sport. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Well, the, you know, another interesting thing for me is, you know, I went to Boston college cause Tom Coughlin was the head coach there and he recruited me there. He never mm-hmm. once came to a high school football game of mine, never once, but he came to several of my basketball mm-hmm. games and he mentioned to me, he said, I wanted to see what kind of competitor you were. I want to see how tough you were. I want to see if you boxed out. Most importantly, I wanted to see if you were coachable, if you were eye contact with the coach when he was talking to you. And I wanted to see if you talked back or gave bad body language to referees when they would call a foul. You know, it was like just really interesting to hear from Tom Coughlin what he was looking for. And uh, I think some of those lessons that I that I learned, even just from hearing him say that, really affected how I was as a quarterback in the NFL saying, Hey, you know, they always talk about the quarterback position intangibles. Well, like what the heck are intangibles? And then I thought, well, shoot, you know, I think maybe some of those things that Tom Coughlin was talking about, those were intangibles. I remember, I remember my rookie year with Brett Favre in green Bay with the green Bay Packers. I remember Andy Reid, our quarterbacks coach saying, Hey, you know, Brett's got great intangibles. And I thought, well, shoot, what are intangibles? And, and I don't, I don't know that I, had them like written down on a list at the time, but I knew being around Brett Favre was an intangible like that. There was just something special about him. There's just a way that like he just led our team in just like an incredible way. The way he intimidated our opponents without ever saying a word to him. It just was, it was something really special. And so, um, you know, just some great life lessons along the way through sports. Mentioned Boston college, go to Boston college. Were you always set on that? Or, or did you? Uh, Heck no. <laughs> no. What What were the other? You know the Listen, I, trips. Or- I, I mentioned I was born in Boulder, Colorado. I grew up the biggest Colorado football fan. My dad played there. Was an All American there. We We loved Colorado football. I wanted to be the next Darian Hagen, Eric Bieniemy. You know, I wanted to run the triple option. Uh, but you know, I'm a I'm a six foot four, 180 pound high school senior. Uh, the triple option wasn't in my game. Uh, you know, so I didn't get recruited to Colorado. I got recruited to a bunch of different schools. I wanted to go somewhere warm and fun. I, you know, mostly grew up in Boston. I feel like it snowed or rained or something like that. Every game I ever had in high school. So I was like, get me out of here. I, I uh, actually tried to commit to UCLA, uh, on a recruiting trip out there. And, and, uh, you know, long story short, Tom Coughlin convinced me not to go to UCLA, and I ended up at Boston College. And you still live in Boston. It's amazing. You can't get away from it. You can't get away. Well, from you it. know what? So what ended up happening at the end of my career? You know, we'd been we'd moved around a lot. I was three years in Green Bay. I was ten years in Seattle. I was two years in Nashville. I was three years in Indianapolis. And then, then, then I'm retired and I'm 40 years old and my kids are about to start high school. And it was like, well, shoot, uh, where should we live? And, you know, one kid wanted to go to Seattle, one wanted to go to Nashville, one wanted to go to Indi- Indiana. And I'm like, all right, let's think about this. And at the time, the sports that our kids were really strong at, they were sports that are really popular in the Northeast, hockey and lacrosse being two, two of the main ones. And, uh, you know, some of that just kind of eliminated some of those other cities if we were going to be serious about those sports. So uh, we took a run at Boston and uh, in five years later, we're still here. Boston College, we get to the draft, uh, NFL draft. You draft in the sixth round uh, with the Packers. 
That first year, you're on the uh, practice squad. Tell me how that went, and and what was your take me through draft day? Yeah, it was a shock, right? So uh, I, my senior year, I'm in grad school. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get an MBA. It's my fifth year. Uh, we don't go to a bowl game. I got pre-invited to the combine, so that means I got an itinerary, but never got a plane ticket. So I, uh, I basically. You know, my agent at the time, I found a guy to represent me and he says, hey, call this number. I call the number and the guy's like, yeah, well, uh, maybe you got bumped. You know, sometimes that happens like, uh, you know, a junior will come out early and we'll bump somebody. I'm like, well, sir, only only one junior is coming out this year in the draft. It's Ryan Leaf. You know, he's the only one. He's like, well, now you know who bumped you. So I get I get bumped from the <laughs> NFL combine uninvited. Um I've since I've since met Ryan Leaf and he's a wonderful guy and I would call him a friend but at the time I was really mad at him and uh, for coming out early and you know being a better college prospect for than me but you know what I said hey I'm gonna train and I'm gonna have a pro day at Boston College so I did I trained my butt off and I trained and trained and I invited every team and only one team showed up to my pro day and it was the quarterback coach for the Green Bay Packers named Andy Reid. And the day he shows up, we've got a huge blizzard in Boston. We don't have an indoor facility at Boston College at the time. And Andy Reid says, hey, um, do you want to go outside and throw in the snow? And I was like, yeah, let's go. I've been training. And he was like, oh, okay, I'm not going out there. That was just a test. I wanted to know that you'd be willing to go out and throw in the snow because I coach in Green Bay and that's kind of an important thing. But we never even worked out. And so I really was discouraged and I thought, shoot, I'm not, I'm not getting drafted. There's no way. And uh, sure enough on draft day, they picked me pick 187 in the sixth round. And I was shocked. I was like, what on earth? These guys don't know what they're doing. Mike Holmgren, Andy Reed, they picked me, they drafted me. I'm not good enough to play in the NFL. Clearly, you know, everyone else knows that, but, um, but they did. And, you know, that was just kind of started an amazing journey for me of not only, not only believing in myself, but just being around an incredible coaching staff, a great organization, and one of the greatest quarterbacks uh, of all time in Brett Favre. You know, it's interesting being an NFL quarterback. It's just, it, what I'm gathering for, you know, we've had a few guys on the show. We've had Rick Meyer on the show and, and Rodney Pete and uh, Drew Bledsoe. That first year, they talk about Rick Meyer just said, you know, Rick Meyer was the number two pick in the draft, uh, comes out of Notre Dame, you know, hot shot and goes straight into the starting role in Seattle. And he said when it was all said and done, looking back, he thought he would have benefited a lot more from coming in under a under a player and watching for a year. Um, how much truth is there to that? You you mentioned playing behind Favre, one of the greatest of all time. And that was kind of in 99 and 2000, you were his backup and you got to learn a lot. Talk, talk about how important that is for an NFL quarterback. I think it's a pretty unique thing in sports. You know, in baseball, we our, our training ground is the minor leagues. We can screw up all we want down there and nobody really cares and nobody sees it. They expect when you get to the big leagues, you're supposed to be a man and ready to go and step in and do the job. There's no more learning on the job. NFL, a little bit different. 
Yeah, well, no doubt. And even Rick, I mean, that was my first year. Rick and I were teammates my first year. And Rick's really the reason I was on the practice squad. Rick, Rick, uh, you know, that was one thing that I, one of the things I learned my first year, Rick Meyer had taught, had played a bunch of football in Seattle, went to Chicago, I believe, and was playing there, gets cut from Chicago and chooses, instead of going somewhere else to play, chooses to come to Green Bay to back up, not, not to be Brett Favre's backup, but to be Doug Peterson's backup. Doug Peterson was backing up Brett Favre. And then Rick Meyer chose to be the third string guy because he saw the value in really getting trained properly by a quarterback friendly system, offense, really understanding uh, the value and being on a good team, being on a, a coaching staff that knows what they're doing, a hall of fame type coaching staff versus a coaching staff that, you know, may or may get fired because they're not, you know, in lockstep with the upper, you know, uh, with management and, st- and ownership and stuff like that. So my rookie year, you know, I mentioned I was at the Green Bay Packers. They weren't coaching me. I wasn't getting any reps or anything like that. In fact, I would play tight end every day in practice, blocking Reggie White in practice. And that was what Andy <laughs> Reid said. He was like, listen, we already have three quarterbacks. We have Brett Favre, we have Doug Peterson, and now we have Rick Meyer. Uh, we have nothing for you to do at practice. Would you be willing to play scout team tight end in practice and then come to all the quarterback meetings and, you know, just we'll get you better. You get to be a fly on the wall. You don't get to talk in meetings. You just get to sit there and listen. And, you know, I was like, heck yeah. Are you kidding me? I'm in like, let's go. Uh, But, you know, they were paying me that year. I think I made $62,500 that year. I would have paid them $75,000 to just get to do what I was doing. It was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, you know, like I said, like Andy Reid and Mike Holmgren are coaching Brett Favre. If I had a question, I wouldn't ask the question. I would write the question down. And then when we, we would break the meeting as Doug Peterson or Rick Meyer and I are walking to the locker room, I would ask one of those two guys my questions. And it, it just you know, it was just a great, great experience. I'm very fortunate to have had that. Didn't have to play right away. You know, Tom Brady obviously didn't have to play right away. Patrick Mahomes sat on the bench an entire year, didn't have to play. That didn't mean he wasn't getting trained. It just meant, you know, he was, you know, they were investing in him. They were investing in his long-term future. Aaron Rodgers sat on the bench for many years before he got an opportunity to play. And I know some guys go right away and I know everyone in the media wants to say, oh, throw them in there. When else are they going to get practice? Well, that's just I just don't believe in that. If you have the luxury of having a veteran room where someone else can uh, can kind of share some of the burden and teach you some great lessons along the way. I think that's a much, much better, smarter way to go. Mentioned Holmgren. He, he ended up being a big part of your life and, and impressed with whatever you were doing. He goes to Seattle. You get traded to Seattle. It's kind of the beginning for you. Uh, at first, you, you back up Trent Dilfer, um, and you finally get the nod, I believe, in 03, where you're the guy. Uh, you play every game. You, you, you go to a Pro Bowl. Uh, you take your team to the playoffs and uh, talk about a little bit about Holmgren and that final that transition, you, like you said, playing playing on the scout team, blocking Reggie White. Next thing you know, you're going to the Pro Bowl as a quarterback. You finally got all that works paid off for you. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it was a lot of lessons I learned. I was, I was probably a little arrogant and immature and, you know, thought I had all the answers and I clearly did not, but you know, Mike Holmgren, I was the fourth string quarterback on the practice squad and I'm not sure he knew my first name. You know, I knew, I knew he knew my last name, but I didn't know if he really knew me. Um, so he leaves, but then I was there another two years and I was Brett Favre's backup that next year. Mike McCarthy's my quarterback's coach. And, uh, you know, then I had a new head coach the next year and, and, you know, I, I had done well. I led the league in passing in the preseason, both those two years, obviously wasn't going to play with Brett Favre on the, on, you know, on the roster, but I was feeling like I had really grown and matured. And then I get traded to Seattle my fourth year now. And I really was struggling because I felt like Mike Holmgren was still treating me like this practice squad backup, backup quarterback who was playing scout team tight end. And it was frustrating and there was some tension there. And, and I would take, I, I think I deserve most of all the blame in terms of why there was tension and we didn't, we didn't hit it off. And I started out as the quarterback and then Dilfer took my job. And then he and I had, you know, this creative comp competitive tension and there was a lot of tension. It was a lot, really hard to kind of get that, you know, Seahawks team off the ground. We didn't have our own stadium. We were practicing. We're sorry. We were playing games at Husky stadium. Um, you know, UW would have much bigger crowds than we would have. Uh, you know, they would have a great crowd on Saturday and we would have a really, you know, less than stellar crowd on Sunday and we weren't playing great football. And, you know, it was also a time the 2001 Mariners were on a tear and I'd be out there on third down and all of a sudden everyone get real loud and cheer and we'd jump off sides. And it was, you know, John Olrude just knocked a scoring run in. It was like, what the heck here guys, you know? So it was, it was, it was a really fun, interesting, hard, um, you know, you know, memory to like now look back on. But at the time, I mean, it was hard and I was miserable. Like I didn't see light at the end of the tunnel. And because of Mike Holmgren and Jim Zorn and Trent Dilfer and Brock Heward and some great people in that locker room, um, you know, we were able to pull through. And I think it made the playoff victories and all the success that we ended up having there so much more meaningful. But it was tough. There were definitely tough times early on. Early in Seattle, and, and that you mentioned that that was you know my time in Seattle, and I have a lot of fond memories. That that time in Seattle history, it was it, the Mariners. We we were as hot as you could be. I mean, that place was rocking. That city was rocking. Um, well, that's funny. Like people ask me, what were your favorite memories from your first year? in Seattle. They're thinking I'm going to say Seahawk things, but I don't know that I have a lot of great Seahawk memory. I was like, well, I, you know, the Mariners were incredible that year. Uh, we hosted the major league baseball all-star game that year. That was really fun. It just, it really was. I mean, it was, that was a special time, but it was hard for the Seattle Seahawks. I feel like to find our niche at that time. Cause it felt like everybody else was doing so well. And we were just, you know, eight and eight, six and 10, seven and nine. Like we just had one of those type teams uh, in 2001. It's amazing too. And, and for the, you know, after that little, that run by the Mariners and, and uh, you know, there's a lot, been a lot of lean years since then. They're, they're knocking on the door right now, trying to make it. We'll see if that happens, but it's kind of flipped. It's kind of flipped in a few years ago. Um, and I go back to, to see a Seahawk game and just walking up to the stadium and, and kind of like a hazy fog. Like I was in a movie. We get there. I'd 
good seats. You know, I get in my seats and, and I looked around and the electricity in that stadium brought me back to those early, early 2000s of those Mariner games where every night it was just packed to the gills and it didn't matter if it was a, a Monday night game against uh, the Kansas City Royals or uh, Friday night against the Yankees. It was the same atmosphere every night, just electric. And I felt that at the Seahawks Stadium, like, wow, this is what I felt back. And, and you can't reenact that. It doesn't happen too often. But that city I found, you win in Seattle, those, that city will show up for you. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, a lot of credit probably goes to everybody that came before us because I do believe of all the teams and organizations that I've been on, I don't know if there's a team or an organization that really plugs into the community the way Seattle does. I mean, at, there were certain times, even in 01, where I felt like, man, we are doing more work in the community than we are doing working on third down and red zone here. Like, what, what, what are we doing? But I kind of realized that both are equally as important. And, you know, maybe just winning, winning fans over one at a time, um, you know, obviously with good, good play on the football field, but also just reaching out into the community was an important piece of it. And, and that didn't just start with like the Mike Holmgren era that, that started way back in 76 with guys like Steve Largen and Jim Zorn and, and Dave Brown and just all kinds of guys that were just, uh, you know, all the way in with uh, with the, not only the city of Seattle, but just the the entire Pacific Northwest right from the get go. And um, that, I think that was one of the very, very important lessons that I learned. Um, like I like I said, I came in not really fully understanding the grasp of what it meant to be the starting quarterback and and what it meant to be, you know, an important piece of the puzzle um on a franchise that was trying to turn things around and 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 those are some good lessons learned yeah in 03 i think i think i remember this correctly it's uh sue bird brett boone and matt hasselbeck up for the sporting news player of the year <laughs> and i think you'd be i'm still a little bitter about it i don't have my trophy i i was a you know uh, we yeah. all go there expecting to win and who's this hasselbeck guy coming out of nowhere taking my hardware Who's this balding quarterback who needs to shave his head? You know, the problem, I couldn't shave my head at the time. I was nervous enough. Everyone was going to think I was Trent Dilfer. Then you got Jay Buhner and you got. Yeah, bone. I forgot about that. I I didn't know what to do. I was in no man's land with my hair, but that was fun, man. I just remember, this is my recollection of that night. I remember, you know, Sue Bird was there. Like you mentioned, I thought, oh, it'd be really cool. Um, have my girls get a picture taken with Sue Bird. I'm like, but who is this guy? Brett Boone acting like a rock star over here, <laughs> running the show, having a good time. You might have had a couple Pepsis or Cokes or whatever. It Maybe. Was, it, was, it was great. It was like you'd walk by the microphone and you just like say something. to the, You had the crowd. That was one of the more fun nights I've ever had in Seattle, the uh, the PI uh, sports banquet. And, uh, and you were a big part of that. I, I was uh, I was in awe of the of how you could commanded the crowd that was good and the rookie rookie manager that year was in was in the audience and it was bob melvin and and i i I think i could think i have this right you're correct and i I think you were kind of like busting his balls a little bit i was like mike holmgren's my coach at the time i'm like oh my gosh like i i could never (laughs) like i'm nervous to say hi to mike holmgren in the hallway like it was it was uh I was like, shoot, I need that kind of confidence when I'm around my coaching staff, my locker room. That was that was great. And I and I loved when the all the sports figures 
from the city would be together and stuff like that. It was really, um, you know, it was super fun, even though the sports are completely different. It's just really fun to kind of get to see what, uh, you know, what each person is like and what their personalities are like and that kind of thing. And, and you mentioned, you know, I, I don't put it past myself. I might have been busting Melvin's balls because it was his rookie year. And and just a little backstory. I mean, I had come through the rigor. I had had, you know, at this point, I'd played for Bobby Cox and Davey Johnson and, uh, and uh, Bruce Bochy. And I just, I, I played for the, in my opinion now, my favorite manager by far of all time and Lou Pinella. And man, you talk about, button heads when I was a kid and, and a rookie back in 1992 and and we would go through I mean he put me through the ringer and we come close to blows in his in his locker room in in Lou's office and so I had kind of been prepared for that so that that 03 me getting on Bob Melvin we had a really good relationship he was just coming into it I was kind of a veteran player at the time there and yeah and me well, and Bob had that it was fascinating. Yeah, it was fascinating though because you know I had a similar you know kind of experience with Mike Holmgren. I always always respected him, but it was you know mostly him yelling at me and me that. <laughs> and so later in my career, I had a lot of coaches that were younger than me, and it just wasn't that foreign to me because I had just sort of seen it. And and I don't know if you were younger, if you were older than Bob Melvin at the time, but I just, that struck me as like a really a different picture of like, wow, what a good, fun working relationship. Um, you know, wonder what that dynamic is like, but um, truly and honestly, I never, I would not be, sounds like you feel the same way about Lou Pinella, but I, there's no chance I would be anywhere close to where I, you know, became as a player without Mike Holmgren's help. He was truly, um, just an exceptional hall of fame type coach who was just, uh, you know, I'm really grateful that I was able to be paired with him. Go. All right. That takes us to 04. You guys go to the back to the playoffs, which brings us to 05, Maddie. You're probably your best year. Uh, you're a pro bowler. Once again, take your, take your Seahawks ball club to the, to the Super Bowl that year. And that's kind of a changing the guard. We talked earlier about that 01, 02, 03 Mariners teams where we were we were kind of the you know the big deal in Seattle, but it's slowly changing now. It's kind of becoming a Seahawk uh city at that point in 2005. You're right in the middle of it. Your best year. Take me through those th- those times right then. Well, I think, listen, listen, losing in the playoffs on the last play of the game in 03 and then again in 04, we realized something had to change. And, you know, the saying at the time was, if you do what you've always done, you're going to be what you've always been. And so we we made some drastic changes going into that 05 season where we got rid of a lot of guys that had a ton of potential. And we got rid of potential and we went with professionalism and we signed guys that maybe weren't superstars, but they they were teammates and players that you just knew you could count on. And then I feel like in the in turn, you know, most of the all of us on the team got a little bit more professional. Like we signed guys like Joe Jaravicious. You know, we had had a little bit of an issue with drop passes maybe the year before and. And uh, we signed a guy that wasn't the fastest guy, you know, wasn't, um, you know, necessarily going to go win a combine, but he was as sure handed of a guy and a great blocker for us in the running game. And Joe Jaravicious, that's like one example of a guy who took us to another level. And when called upon, I think he caught 10 touchdowns for us that year as a backup wide receiver. And so just getting rid of potential and going to professionalism and some of the people with potential uh, just starting showing more professionalism. And and we won some close games that year. I think we won 13 or 14 games that year. 
And it was just a great run. And to see that city come alive and to see, you know, uh, us beat the Rams, who were one of our like just absolute nemesis. Like, we could not stop that Mike Martz greatest show on turf offense for years and years. But to, to finally get there and have a first round bye and, and win the NFC championship game at home in Seattle with our own confetti flying down, it was just an incredible, incredible year and a great journey. And, and, you know, we obviously get to the Super Bowl and we, we lose the Super Bowl to the Steelers. And that was such a letdown. But uh, I think one of the lessons was to look back and remember the journey that was and how great all that effort was getting to that spot. Not just the 05 season, but everything that kind of came before it, too. Like you said, you went to the Super Bowl, you lost that Super Bowl. I, I, people... People don't realize, and now that I, you know, I sit back as <laughs> removed twelve or thirteen years, and and look at all the years I played and all the great players I was fortunate enough to play with, and how hard it is to not only get to the Super Bowl, win the Super Bowl. Now, how hard it is not just to get to the World Series, but to win the World Series. It's it's uh, man. It's a tough thing. I remember going to the World Series in 01, and and it was a foregone conclusion. You know, that was our year. It was magical. And we're just going to mail it in here and beat the Yankees because that's the way it's supposed to be. That's how that journey felt. And when we lost, I remember waking up the next day kind of in a fog. Like, did that really happen? Uh, For you, going to your first Super Bowl, that week leading up to it's like no other in, in any other sport. But... But what I'd like to know is what was going through your mind the day after the loss? Did it sink in or was it like, wow, you know, take me through that a little well, bit. Well, it was two weeks, you know, there's two weeks back then or right, right now there's two weeks before the Super Bowl. So, you know, we're creatures of habit as football players. Every seven days, there's a game and you just get into that rhythm. And so your body was out of that rhythm already with having two weeks and then on top of that, it's the Super Bowl. It's the biggest game of your life. And you're, it's everything you've ever dreamed of. It's everything you've ever been working towards. And we just knew that we knew that we knew we were going to win that game because we what we saw on film and what we knew we could do offensively. And for whatever reason, we did not play our best football that day. And we had some things go against us, but we didn't play our best. And looking back, I would say we kind of overtried a little bit. And when we lost... I just remember this, like, you know, at the end of every game, usually the home team and the visiting team, they meet at the 50 yard line. A few guys meet at the 50 yard line. And you say like a prayer together. And I remember being like, man, it's going to be hard, you know, for whoever loses this game to sit there and say a prayer with the team that just beat them in the Super Bowl. But like, ah, you know. It'll probably be them. So you don't have to worry too much about it. But I just remember saying like, you know, you make this like a little arrangement with God kind of like, hey, uh, but listen, in, in the in the wild event that we don't win this game and like that we lose, I promise I'll still be there at the 50 yard line. You know, just saying a prayer like thank you that no one got, you know, seriously hurt or thank you for this opportunity. What an incredible like gift this is to even be in this game, you know, in front of our friends and family and all that. And um I just remember how hard it was to sit there at the 50 yard line on a knee with a handful of my teammates waiting for them to celebrate in, you know, in their confetti, not our confetti in their confetti and just have their family on the field and have their guys hoisting the Lombardi and then wait for them. And I just remember like, you know, I, I made a commitment to doing this. I'm going to do it. And, uh, 
and that that was a surreal moment for me where it was like did that really just happen is this really happening did we find a way to lose this game you know we 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 didn't lose very many games at all that year like how on earth can we it was almost like can we run it back can we just do this one more time like let's just play let's start the game over now and uh and I, as you know that's not how sports work and it was a good le- good lesson that you know nothing's promised you got to play every play you got to play every game and take advantage of uh of every situation. And in that day, we, we certainly did not. And, uh, it's a regret that you, that you'll have. But, uh, again, I think there's a lot of great lessons to learn as well. You know, what's amazing to me as a baseball player, we don't do what the other sports do. You know, when the hockey game ends, uh, they're always shaking hands, basketball, football, you know, on Sunday you lose and, with a with a long field goal, and you're always out there shaking the other team's hand. Baseball, we lose, we go straight to our locker room. There's no good game, so it, it's very strange for me. But it's so in the other sports to kind of give you know, and like you said, that particular day in the Super Bowl, you didn't know how you were going to do it and go out there to the 50 yard line, but you made a commitment to do it. Uh, well, it's a great point. It, it's making- weird for me watching other sports like, man, I'm so pissed at this point. I'm not even I don't care if I never see that guy again. There's no it's like baseball. We have no sportsmanship, but it's kind of the way we're brought up. It's weird. Well, you make you make a fantastic point, because in hockey, I was just talking to a hockey player about this, a guy in the Bruins, and he was telling me that in hockey, they never do that after regular games. Like they never do the handshake thing. But at the end of a. Um, I believe this is what he said at the end of a series after under like a playoff series, that's when they do it. And to me, that's the one like, no, literally they're just cheap shotting themselves. You literally just got to a fist fight with somebody. You're talking smack to each other the entire time. And now all of a sudden it's like never, I've never seen a fight break out at the handshakes or at least I've never. And it, it seems so sincere. It seems so like it's a hundred percent participation, you know, in football, it's not a, the, the prayer is not a hundred percent participation. It's an incredible experience for anybody that is a part of it, but like it's uh it is fascinating how the sports are different. And uh, again, I think that's one of the great things about hanging out with guys or girls from different sports. Um, it's just, just, you learn from their sport and you learn to appreciate some of the things that your sport does as well. Yeah. It's a, now it's bringing me back. Like we're, Baseball players, we're the biggest jerks go because we well, you've got all the unwritten say, rules, right? We got all the unwritten rules that that we've been breaking down, especially this year with everything going on. And and I had to do some thinking about it. And I, you know, I I woke up and I said, "What are the unwritten rules? The unwritten rules are whatever the current players say they are, not what I say they were when I played. It's not my game anymore. It's the current and and the next set of uh, of kids coming up and you know the next 10 or 20 years they'll have their own unwritten rules i guess the ones we live by aren't lived by today so i i've been you know banging my head on what are the unwritten rules but you're right they make a lot of that in our game of baseball uh oh six you go back to the playoffs oh seven another pro bowl season for yourself it's your fourth straight division title um so things are rolling for you pretty good in Seattle. I had a question, 2008, uh, and it was a big deal for the city of Seattle. The Sonics leave. What was that city like uh, when when such a big part of the, the history of the city and, and 
you know, especially the basketball team, just leaves. I, it was a big deal in Seattle at that time. I used to joke with my teammates, Kevin Durant came into Seattle when I got there and there wasn't room for both of us. So he had to leave, you know, they had to go. Uh, (laughs) Guys look at me like, what? You were there when Kevin Durant was there? It's like, it's like some of my younger teammates in the NFL don't even remember that Seattle had a basketball team. It's like, what? no, that's Oklahoma city. What are you talking about? And that's a shame. That's a shame because that was uh, um, just a real fail. I think by, you know, the people in charge at the time to lose the franchise the way that it happened. But uh, yeah, that was a disappointing time. But again, like, you know, as, as I kind of said earlier, it's very, it's a very competitive sports town where obviously you're cheering for the other teams, but you're, you're also just, Hey, you're trying to do the best that you can at, at your time. And I remember like, like I mentioned in 01, when you guys were rolling, the Mariners were rolling. Um, it was, sort of, uh, you know, so we could see what we were trying to become. We were trying to be a team that half of their home games weren't blacked out and the fans couldn't even see it on TV. We were trying to be the opposite of that. We were trying to be maybe one of the best home field advantages in all of football. You know, we saw what it was supposed to be. And, And I think for people that really knew what the, what the Sonics were, um, you know, it, it meant something. It was just such a, such a source of pride for the city. And then to lose that, and now all these younger generations don't even remember it. Uh, it's a, it was a real shame. So hopefully hopefully that can come back. You know, I know Seattle's getting a hockey team now, which is incredibly cool. But uh, hopefully that can come back. You know, we were original uh, ticket uh, I guess season ticket holders for when the Sounders came to town. And to see that success and how that's taken off as well. Uh, would regularly take our girls to, you know, storm games. That, that was really great. But, but to not have the NBA franchise anymore is, uh, that's a real shame. I wish that never would have happened. Oh, eight, oh, nine, uh, 2010, you had a back injury in 08, fractured your rib in 09. But what I was getting to, I remember my time in Seattle and, and, uh, you know, I consider myself a Mariner. I, I, played for the Cincinnati Reds for five years, had to stop in Atlanta and San Diego, but I always consider myself a Mariner. But my time in, in 05, it's, you know, I looked up that the city was so gracious to me. Uh, they, they took me in uh, so well. I mean, I just think back of those memories. But in 05, it was like you mentioned some players earlier. The John Olaroots had retired. Edgar Martinez had retired. Uh one of, one of the fan favorites there, Jay Buhner was gone. And I kind of was just looking around. You know, we were starting to kind of go in the opposite direction. We weren't winning it. And I could just see kind of the writing on the wall for me. Fans were overly embraced above me. But I kind of knew something was changing. And it's like, I'll always be a Mariner. I don't know how much longer I'm going to play this game, but it's probably not going to be in Seattle. Because, you, you know, when you could just feel it, I had a new second baseman coming in as a young player. I was helping him along because I just kind of knew I was leaving. I wasn't bitter about it. I wasn't angry. I want to know how your time when it was coming to an end after that 2010, Pete Carroll comes in uh, and replaces Holmgren as the head coach. Um, What was that time like for you? Because you had spent a lot of time in Seattle. You've been a superstar in the city. Uh, You know, we had covered it. You went to three, three pro bowls, brought you, you know, went to the playoffs six times. Uh, how was that for you when, when it was kind of time that, yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to leave Seattle here. 
Well, I didn't play my best football in 08 and 09, and I was banged up. And, you know, I learned a lot through that. And that was really disappointing. But I felt like I was coming back and I was going to be my old self in 2010. And we had a new coaching staff. And it just was, it's always hard when you're a player and there's a new coach or a new GM, you're more likely to not be there than you are to be there. And for me as a quarterback, that was, turning 35 that season and you got a new coach coming in from college and he's going to probably push me out the door. We traded for a guy to replace me in the third. I think we gave away a third round pick to get Charlie Whitehurst. And, you know, they were, they were always bringing in quarterbacks that year. And I actually was okay with it because I really enjoyed Pete Carroll's coaching style. He had this whole thing where, Hey, competition makes us better. Uh, we're going to make every environment a competitive environment. We don't care who you are, how much money you make, where you were drafted or what you've done in the past. It's all about what you can do for us tomorrow. And I was great with that. Like maybe the competitor in me was like, yeah, like about time we do this and let's do this at all positions. The problem was the other part of Pete Carroll's thing was, Hey, we can't turn the ball over. That's our whole thing. And for whatever reason, maybe the mindset was don't turn the ball over. I started turning the ball over more than I'd ever turned the ball over. And so I, I was playing with a broken wrist, but that wasn't really it. I think it was more like, you know, I didn't understand fully how to have the, the, the pedal to the metal, full throttle. Hey, we're on offense and you're on defense. I'm not going to play scared. I didn't really know how to flip that Mike Holmgren style to the Pete Carroll style right away. And I struggled with that. And we were kind of a roller coaster of a year that way. And we, we started clicking at the end of the year, had a really good playoff run. We won that beast quake game against the saints who were the world champs. Marshawn Lynch has, you know, the greatest run in NFL history, I think the playoffs that year, I, you know, after having a really bad year, I think I had seven touchdowns and one interception in those two playoff games. It felt like it was starting to click, but I really didn't know that my time was over uh, in Seattle. And the lockout, the NFL lockout came. And I think it was just a nice, clean time to say goodbye uh, for them. They were building a foundation uh, for something great in the future. And I think uh, they felt like, hey, we've got a decent foundation and we've got something to build on. Let's cut the cord, go younger. And, you know, it, it, it happens. And I think every athlete has to come to grips with it at some point for the most part. And it did take me a little bit by surprise that it happened that way. But looking back, there were some great things that happened that last year and some awesome uh, lessons learned and you know, to, to end my last game ever in Seattle with that beast quake game with my kids on the field with me, with my son on my shoulders. It's a memory I know that they'll never forget. And uh, I hope I never forget it as well. 2011, you head to the Titans. You sign a three-year deal with the Titans. What I wanted to get to is that the full circle of, of Matt Hasselbeck's career. Uh, 2014, you go to the Indianapolis or yeah, the Colts. And once again, this, this, this is really interesting to me because I know nothing about it. And I, you were talking about the other sports and, and talking to people that play other sports and how different and get the intricacies. It's so interesting to me. I had Rodney Pete on and I was talking to Rodney because, as you know, he played a lot of years in the NFL, probably played just as much as a starter as he did as a backup. But here you are, Hasselback, going through, uh, man, an 18-year career. You started off. Uh, 
you know, on the on the headsets for for Brett Favre. Now you go to the Colts and you got this the new kid in town, Andrew Luck, who at the time was was the was the latest and greatest. Um, how was that for you? Was it tough? Was it easy? Or were you prepared for it? Did you really help Andrew Luck? That that's what really intrigues yeah. me. Well, I, I never would have left Seattle to be a backup for someone else. I would have just retired. But that what happened was I had several teams when, when the, out of the lockout who had offered me starter jobs and with a ton of money and which the money wasn't really about the money. It was more about the money as a sign of the commitment of how much we're uh, invested in you. And, you know, one of the things that happened during the NFL lockout is I was working out a bunch over at the University of Washington. I developed a lot of great friends over there. Well, the Tennessee Titans had just drafted Jake Locker as the eighth pick overall to be their future quarterback. But they offered me to come be their starting quarterback. And they said, listen, you're not here to mentor him. You're here to start. And he'll just learn whatever he can learn by watching you play. And that's exactly what I had sort of experienced myself in green Bay under Brett Favre and those guys. And so I said, sure, let's go. I started every game for the Titans that year, statistically probably had the best year of my career. And the next year he became the starter and I became his backup. And I loved the experience. I loved Jake Locker. I loved our other young quarterback. I found myself paying stuff forward to them the way that Doug Peterson and Rick Meyer and Brett Favre paid it forward to me. Trent Dilfer and all the other guys along the way paid it forward to me and helped me when I was the younger quarterback. And I really felt like I was... I don't know. It was like, it was very fulfilling to me to see growth in them as players, as people and all that kind of stuff. And then I realized, you know, I, at the end of that run, I, you know, the Indianapolis Colts, they said, Hey, we've got this prized possession in Andrew Luck and we want him to be everything that we we hope that he can be. Will you come be his backup? And we'll pay you handsomely to come be his backup. And, and I had a chance to go maybe fight for some starting jobs other places. And I said, you know what? The value is in being in a great organization who understands what success who looks like, what understands what a winning culture looks like. And from the Tony Dungy, Peyton Manning years, all the way down through the Andrew Luck years, this was an organization to me that, that just got it. And I went there and I backed up Andrew Luck for what ended up being three years and uh, it was a tremendous experience. Uh, made great friendships. I feel like I invested in that team. Didn't start any games until that third year. I think I was 40 years old when I started. I think I started eight or nine games that year. And But but it didn't matter. I felt like I made an impact in that locker room on the, during those three years, much in the same way that a lot of those guys, when I was a young player back in Green Bay, made an impact on me. So uh, it was definitely humbling. It was hard to go from being sort of the guy, the starter and all that, to being a guy running scout team cards, a guy pretending to be other quarterbacks around the league. But our team was winning. Andrew Luck was playing great football. And, uh, and I had a blast. I'm very, very thankful that, uh, that it did kind of come full circle that way. And that's really cool. What you talked about is giving back and, and being able to have a positive impact on a young player, because we all go through this, this game of life and especially our, uh, unique professions. And there are people along the way that, that you can look in their eyes and they genuinely want you to succeed, especially when you're a young player and, and they're genuinely there to help you. But then there's some guys you look at 
And I remember coming up, there were certain guys that didn't have that genuineness pretending to help me, but really I could feel behind my back going, man, I hope he doesn't do well. Mm-hmm. The fact that you could stand there after the career that you had had said, I'm just here. If I can have a positive impact on another athlete, it, for you, it was, was Andrew Luck. Uh, I think that's really cool. And I, and I think some of our biggest gifts in life are, are, are given back. And, and I, I, I know I did that, you know, for a couple of years, I worked for the Oakland A's with the minor league guys and it wasn't about anything. I didn't want any headlines. I didn't want any credit for anything, but I had a young group of talented kids that I thought if I could just pass on a little bit of what I knew uh, and give it to them before they should have it, and I could make the slightest impact on their career, uh, that's good enough for me. And a, and a look that between myself and the and the player, the student, uh, that was plenty. That's all I need. A lot of those kids made it to the big leagues, and and it's kind of cool to say, wow, I was there at the very beginning when they were in a ball. And, and maybe, just maybe, that little thing we worked on on that Tuesday afternoon helped him along the way. But that was some of the most fulfilling things for me, uh, you know, aside from myself and, and what I did in my career. So it, it's really cool to hear you say something like that. Yeah, and it was a two-way street, too. Like even at an older, as a, I think one of the best things I did as a 40-year-old quarterback in the NFL, I tried to humble myself and just try to say, okay, I can learn every day. Like, what can I learn? And some things I was learning what was football. But quite honestly, some of the other things were, you know, my girls were in middle school and uh, my teammates were teaching me how to use Snapchat and, you know, keep up on them. And I had, you know, all the Stanford guys in our locker room were teaching and you know, helping me with, you know, seventh and eighth grade math homework. And it was passing me by. So it was, it was a really, I feel like those guys kept me young. I feel like there was maybe some things that I possibly passed on to them, but I would say it was 50, 50. I feel like I was getting just as much from them as they were getting out of me. And the mindset that really helped me though, was one of those things that either Doug Peterson or Rick Meyer said to me while we were all competing together. One of those guys one day said, you know, we're not really just competing against each other. So let's just root for each other to do really well because we're all competing against anybody in the world that they can find to do this job better than all of us. So it was kind of like, yeah, hey, we're in this thing together. You're not my enemy. Like we're in this thing together. And uh, it was just a freeing thing, the, the way to think about it when you're in a high stakes competitive environment where it's not like you versus me. It's, it's really me versus me. And, and, and that version of me, like at the end of the day, just do the best that you can. And if you do the best you can with your God given ability, then, Hey, you did all you could do. There you go. All right, Matt, in retiring in 2016, you signed a one day contract with the Seahawks. Uh, was that pretty cool coming back home where it all started, not where it all started, but where the bulk of your career had been played. Yeah. So I actually didn't, I never did sign a one day contract with Seattle. I I don't know how that works. I think that's a big thing in other sports and I see people do it now. Maybe when I retired, it wasn't a big thing. I think of myself as a Seahawk. I I don't need a, uh, you know, to do a ceremony for that kind of a thing. I mean, I think everyone in Seattle, that organization knows how I feel about them. And uh, I think I know how they feel about me, but, uh, but when I did choose to retire, I jumped right into a job at ESPN and, you know, now looking back with all the different coaches and head coaches and then different teams that I was able to play for different teammates. I think it has helped me in my new role in terms of being able to speak to different things, as opposed if I had just been with one team my entire career. 
here on the NFL countdown. Did you always want to do that? Did you start thinking at the end of your playing career that, oh, what am I going to do when I'm done? Because you transitioned right away. It wasn't like you took five or six years off and took a bunch of trips. You just kind of went right into it. Yeah, I'd never really planned on going into TV, but when I was playing, uh, Fox actually approached me and said, hey, would you like to call some games? And I thought, well, sure, why not? I'm, uh, that be sounds fun. I'm always curious about how hard or easy that is to do. And so I actually called a game while I was still playing. I called a Rams-Arizona Cardinals game. It was actually a game that Carson Palmer tore his ACL in. And I had a blast. It was really, really fun. And I called it with Rondé Barber and Chris Myers. And I thought what I realized was basically just like playing quarterback, it's a team. And you might just see mostly the quarterback and the running back on TV, but it takes everybody. It takes offensive linemen. It takes a slot receiver. It takes someone designing the plays. And that's the same thing. There were so many people behind the camera that weren't on camera that it took to have a successful broadcast. And that was really cool. And I think it was almost just a, a, a way to be competitive on how you could get better uh, talking about a sport that you love. And so when I had the opportunity to, to start at ESPN, I just thought, hey, this is, uh, this is maybe just a dream come true. And I didn't even know I had the dream. Going to the Ring of Honor this year, October 25th. How cool was it for you, Maddie, getting that phone call from the Seahawks? Oh my gosh. It was an incredible day. I was actually in Lake Placid, New York, standing under the Olympic torch where the, where the Olympics once were winter Olympics. And I get a call from the Seahawks and it's uh, Chuck Arnold, the president of the Seahawks, totally blindsided me. I didn't see it coming. And uh, he said, listen, we have 12 you know, people in the ring of honor. I said, yeah, I know. It's awesome. <laughs> He's like, you're going to be number 13. And Mike Holmgren's going in as well at this year. And I thought, wow, to go in with Mike Holmgren, what an honor to go in at all is just something that means a lot to me. It's going to mean a lot to my family. And I don't, I don't really think of it as a, as an individual award. I know it's my name that's going up there, but I, I think about all the different guys and you know some women too that that were invested in us getting uh to the point where we were someone who was winning our division year after year going to the playoffs you know taking this team to the super bowl it wasn't just about me I, for sure it was max strong and robbie tobeck and steve hutchinson chris gray sean alexander daryl jackson bobby ingram low foot to all these great teammates and uh so many people so I'm obviously happy for myself, but I'm happy for them because they. I hope that they take pride uh, in this honor because they they have so much to do with it as well. Biggest influence in your football career, Matt Hasselback. Who I don't know that I could ever really just say one person, but a guy that probably doesn't get enough credit for me is probably Trent Dilfer. Trent Dilfer you know, was the starting quarterback for a stretch in Seattle, got hurt. I took his job and then he never got it back. And he invested in me not only as a football player, but just in every way. Uh, he was really bothered by the fact that I wasn't a wine connoisseur like him. You know, I was coming from college and it was kind of like just like a light beer drinker, basically. And so Trent would do this thing for every touchdown pass that I would throw. He would buy me a bottle of wine. And, and, you know, the bottle of wine would be 
the quality would be related to like how nice the touchdown pass was. So like if it was a screen pass, I was just getting like a pretty basic bottle of table wine. And if it was like a really yeah. great audible against Ray Lewis and Ed Reed in Baltimore or something, it's going to be this amazing silver Oak or something like that. And so like he invested, I felt like in every aspect of my life and it really came full circle for us this year with my, my youngest child, my son, played quarterback for Trent last year. Trent's a high school football coach now. And uh, it just, it just, you just see these amazing, just sort of the circle of everything about how Trent and I were so competitive and didn't have the best relationship because we were fighting to be the starter. And, and then we became good friends and then just, you know, how, how he has sort of mentored me through, through my football life, through my marriage life, through my parenting life, you know, all of that stuff. I'm, I'm very grateful for him. Matt Hasselback, very, very, very cool. Uh, I appreciate you coming on the Boom Podcast. It was an honor. I wish you the best on the on the 25th. Get that speech down, Pat. I know it's going to be a cool day for you. And what we do each and every time on the Boom Podcast is we bring back the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy-Daska. Question from the fans. Dan? Hey, Matt. This question comes from Lee in Seattle and wants to know this. Matt, how many times do you get asked to sign someone's, your brother Tim's football card? <laughs> I, get, I would say I get mistaken for just about every bald white guy that's out there <laughs> from my brother to Trent Dilfer to I've heard Scott Van Pelt. I've heard, I mean, I've heard them all, you know, so uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just used to it at this point. Well, Matt Hasselback, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it, sir. All right, guys. See ya. That's going to do it for the podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the voice of the Boom Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital, that's Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.